Well, uh, a reminder from last week's passage, uh, the persecutions and the trials that you face, uh, verse 6 of chapter 12, are not because God is treating you as an enemy. It's really important that we remember that. The discipline that you face is because you are his son. Uh, There is not an ounce of God's wrath in his discipline for you. Because it was all poured out on our Savior at Calvary's tree. God's discipline is the refiner's fire, not the hellfire. You see, it is your purity that is being extracted from you and pulled from you. Your sufferings, your sickness, your adversity, persecution, they're not meaningless and they're not because God doesn't love you. Rather, it is because God loves you. It is with design, designed by God for your good and for your godliness. So last week's message begins with run the race and it ends with make your paths straight. And sandwiched in the middle of that is a loving God who disciplines his children for their godliness, for our peace and for our holiness. Uh, Remember from last week, verses 10 and 11 says, Our fathers discipline us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Uh, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And that's where we begin today in verse 14. Uh, The first heading we look at is that we are to pursue peace and holiness. Since as we saw last week, God is pursuing our peace and our holiness by disciplining us. Well, then today we're going to see that, well, we ought to pursue that as well. If God is pursuing that for us, well, we also need to pursue that for us. In the effort of making our paths straight, pursue peace with everyone and pursue holiness with God. So verse 14 of chapter 12 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Uh, To make peace with everyone is is the attempt... Uh, to not be a troublesome member of society. Uh, Make peace on your road. Make peace as you run the race. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Uh, To be a peacemaker is to reflect the character of God, your Father, who makes peace with men through Jesus. And so as God has made peace with you, do likewise. Uh, Paul would later say, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, the gospel should be our only offense. The gospel is our two-edged sword. Uh, We cut as we expose men's sinfulness and they are healed as they repent bringing them to peace with God, or as their sin is exposed, as we preach the gospel, sin is exposed. It proves their hatred for God if they do not repent 
and if they treat you in a way that is not at all peaceful. Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10 should be a great reminder to us that the Prince of Peace, who we see in Luke chapter 2, did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Friends, the inevitable work, the inevitable result of Christ's work in this world is that conflict between God's enemies will occur. That's the inevitable result of Christ's work, that there will be conflict. The darkness hates the light. The Antichrist is so named because he is opposed to the things of God. And so we must, we, so we must not be confused by this. Peace with others does not mean peace at all costs. It does not mean peace at the expense of your spiritual integrity. We are to strive for peace for, with others. In that we are to be known as people who are generally obedient to the laws of the land. Who love their leaders. Who love their enemies. But in love we also preach the sword of the gospel and allow it to expose the hearts of men. In order that they might find the grace of God. But friends we cannot control their response to that. They, they will either turn to God and love Him, or they will reject Him and hate you. We cannot control their emotions, their perceptions, or their antagonism. But friends, we remain faithful unto God, living as best as we can as foreigners and as strangers in this world. This world that is not our home. But we do not engage in the sinful culture of the world at the expense of our pursuit of godliness. So friends, I want to tell you that peaceful living is gospel preaching. Peaceful living is not looking like your unsaved neighbors. It is not looking like a particular party or politics. It is not looking like sinful ambitions and worldly desires. You have thrown that off. You have got rid of every weight that so hinders you. And so, friends, you preach the gospel every day. You preach it to yourself. You need the gospel. You need to understand your sin. You need to repent of it. Uh, to receive the gospel of grace from your Father and to be disciplined by it. You need to preach the gospel to your spouse and to your children. And you need to allow them to preach that same gospel to you. Husbands. Wives. Parents, does your spouse, do your children, do they see repentance from you? Do they see an example of peace in the home? Do you confront sin and hindrances in your own life as an example of the pursuit of godliness as you preach the gospel to yourself every day? And then out of that life, out of that inward peace, because you have peace with God, and as you throw off every hindrance and weight of sin, to live a godly life in an ungodly world.
Friends, when the culture confronts you, peacefully preach Christ. When your friends turn against you, peacefully preach Christ. When your family disowns you, peacefully preach Christ. When your enemies persecute you, peacefully preach Christ. When the world hates you, peacefully preach Christ. Let the gospel be your only offense. But do not give up the gospel in order that you might look like the world. That is not true peace. That is a false peace, and we're going to see that later on in this passage. Friends, it is through the proclamation of the gospel as the sword cuts to the heart and exposes our deep offense towards God that we come to repentance in faith and are made holy. What does our passage say? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I want to see the Lord. I want to see him on his throne. And so God is pursuing my peace and holiness through his discipline. And I too am to pursue peace and holiness as I remain faithful to his holy word. Now we come to a warning. Uh, We're told not to be like Esau. Now Esau is not counted in the previous chapter in the heroes of faith, chapter 11. Uh, Read with me from verse 15. It says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Uh, Let's stop there. Uh, Discipline can often cause in us uh, bitterness. Uh, How many of you are bitter towards your parents because of the way they disciplined you? Uh, I think it's a common occurrence. Our response to rebuke and correction can be twisted as we face the harsh reality of of sin and theirs. Uh, But as I said last week, in passing, discipline in the home and discipline in the church are, are good because that is the means by which God causes us to grow in godliness. Uh, church discipline is a very rare occurrence these days. We don't like it. It's a yucky word, isn't it? We, oh, I'm scared of church discipline. But friends, the point of discipline is to restore us to God and to restore us to the church. Peace and holiness. That's the point of church discipline. Now, it may or it may not surprise you, uh, depending what you think about me, but I have undergone church discipline. I have had elders and pastors discipline me. Uh, And in that process, there were good things and there were bad things. They disciplined me as best they knew how. Their intention was good, but sometimes in the way in which they disciplined me, it produced in me a bitterness towards them, a bitterness towards that discipline. I was angry, yet... Yet that discipline was for my good. I was only angry because I was a sinner, not because I was righteous. For there to be fruits of righteousness and peace in my life as I grew in godliness, I needed to be disciplined. I hadn't spoken to that pastor for quite some time. Uh, he moved churches. He went and planted a church in the north of England. And, and I was extremely, extremely blessed to be able to connect with him the other day over social uh, media. 
And the first thing I said to him was, was Lewis, and you can ask my wife, uh, she was in the room as, as we had this conversation. I said, Lewis, I am so sorry for all the grief that I caused you. But I want you to know the incredible impact you had on me. Now, I've never forgotten the, the many lessons, the conversations, the encouragements, the corrections, the rebuke that he gave me over our time together in order that I might pursue holiness, in order that I might be a godly minister of the gospel. I wanted him to know that. I wanted him to know that I did not despise his discipline as he sought to uphold the holiness of God in my life, to, to cause me to walk in righteousness and peace in order that I might see the Lord. I want to see the Lord. Christians are to pursue holiness together. Let us not miss out on the grace of God. And when we are disciplined by God, by the church, by our families, let us praise God. Now, we're told now to not be like Esau. So read verse 16 and 17 with me. It says, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the older son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. One of the ways we fall in our race is through sexual sin. It is the sin that causes uh, kings to stumble and fall. Uh, David and Solomon, uh, the greatest kings of Israel, uh, they were not exempt from this. And neither are you. The Bible emphasizes over and over again the seriousness of sexual immorality. But we know that we live in a culture that minimizes it. And so, friends, we're to be on guard. Sexual sin is, is not only, uh, does not only go against God's law, but it is counterproductive to our pursuing peace and holiness. And Paul writes that it defiles our bodies, which are temples of the Holy Spirit who resides in us. Sexual sin is not just a physical exercise, but it is a deeply spiritual one. Now, it's unclear why the, the writer brings us up with the Hebrews. It doesn't feel like this is something particularly that the Hebrew Christians are struggling with. Uh, so it feels like a throwaway line and doesn't really fit in with what we know of Esau's life either. We don't know as Esau being someone who was sexually immoral. But I think it is mentioned in the same breath as Esau because of his unfaithfulness to God. You see, sexual sin shows unfaithfulness. Sexual immorality for the Christian displays a deep contempt for God's word and his created order. Uh, to bring other people into your sexual realm who are not your spouse will cause both them and you great harm. It is not the effort of making peace with everyone and of pursuing holiness. Sexual sin destroys people. It destroys relationships. And so if that is you, cut it out. Cut it out. Get rid of it. Throw it away and pursue holiness.
What of Esau's unfaithfulness? Well, he sold his inheritance for soup. He sold his inheritance. God's created order as the first child. He sold that off for a single meal. And his unfaithfulness was proved in his failure to repent. He didn't seek after repentance. He didn't profess deep godly sorrow for his wrongdoing. He despised his inheritance. Yet he did not seek peace with God nor with his brother. He only sought after what he had thrown away so willfully. He grew in bitterness and anger as he sought after his brother's life. So, so, so don't confuse verse 17 with, uh, though he sought the blessing with tears, uh, don't confuse that with repentance. That's not what it was. He was simply upset that he lost out on the inheritance that he threw away. But he did not go after God with repentance and with godly sorrow. Uh, the story of Esau is a reminder of what we saw in the previous warning in chapter 10 of, of those who had a knowledge of the truth yet rejected it. Uh, and that makes sense given the context of, of the urging and the encouraging one another to holiness. I remember what we said in chapter 10, do not give up meeting with one another. Uh, it is possible that the Hebrew Christians were indulging the idea of compromising their faith and, and despising their spiritual birthright by throwing it away instead of every hindrance and sin. By returning to Judaism to gain relief from their persecution. But to do that would be to prove their unfaithfulness and despise Christ's blessing with tears. So friends, there is a warning there. Do not despise the Christian race, brothers and sisters. Do not let bitterness overcome your soul. Don't look at your discipline and despise it. Uh, where there is sin, stomp it out. Uh, get rid of it. Keep running. Pursue holiness as you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Now, this is the high point now that we've come to in Hebrews. Everything that we have done so far in the book of Hebrews has now come to this point in chapter 12. Uh, and as we are running this race of godliness, there is a very clear distinction that is made for these Hebrew Christians and for us. And, and the question on that distinction is, where is our salvation? Where is it to be found? Which direction are we headed? As we run this race, where are we going? Which way to heaven? You see, there are two mountains. There is Mount Sinai and there is Mount Zion. Which way to heaven? Now, verse 18 to 21, we're not going to read it, but, but do have your Bibles open there. Uh, there is a description of receiving the old covenant in Exodus on, on Mount Sinai. Uh, when Israel, through Moses, is given God's law on stone tablets, uh, it was a frightening occasion. Uh, the people could not touch the mountain or they would die as God's presence visited that place, uh, accompanied by lightning and thunder and earthquakes and, and a thick cloud of God's glory covered it. Uh, even if animals touched that mountain, they were to be put to death. 
Even Moses, who had been given unprecedented access to God, was afraid. And Mount Sinai is where, uh, is where the Jews first meet the holiness of God. Uh, this is where the law was given to them, and it is terrifying to be in God's presence. And it's a picture of death. But friends, this is not where the Christian goes. We don't go to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. So follow along verse 22 to 24 with me. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Uh, this is a really beautiful piece of writing. Uh, like Mount Sinai, Jews associated themselves with the physical Zion, the, the city Jerusalem, right? So when they thought Zion, they thought Jerusalem. It was the city of promise and of peace. However, history shows that their hope in the physical Jerusalem, in the rebuilding of the temple, was no hope at all as, was, as it was destroyed by the Romans. Now, the author is not speaking of the physical Jerusalem, but of the heavenly Jerusalem. Friends, Christians do not go to Mount Sinai, nor do they go to the physical Jerusalem in which Zion was associated. They go to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of God, the true Mount Zion, where God reigns. That's where we go. Now, the description of these two mountains could essentially be described as, as God's law and God's grace. Uh, the two covenants, the old and the new. Uh, and these two covenants are represented by two people, by Moses and by Jesus. And there are two outcomes. One produces terror and fear and death. The other produces joy and life. Uh, the one was a shadow, the other the reality of certain hope. We have seen throughout Hebrews of the Old Covenant uh, and what it did and how it pointed to the new. The old was delivered by Moses. The new was delivered by the better Jesus. The old enslaved. The new brings freedom. The old left us imperfect as it required never-ending sacrifice. The new is made perfect because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. The old required many earthly priests. The new required one heavenly priest. The old reveals our sin. The new covers our sin. The old brought death. The new brings life through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Friends, Jesus already climbed Mount Sinai on our behalf. Jesus faced the wrath of God at Jerusalem. He did what no sinful human being could do. He perfectly obeyed God's law and he became for us an offering of death in order that we too could obey the law of God. From those stone tablets to the law written on our hearts. We meet with God where Jesus fulfilled the law of God at the cross. So friends, if you want to find heaven, look 
to the cross. That is our great signpost. I wish I had more time to expound on this passage more. Uh, The joy of being with the angels in heaven. Uh, Angels whom throughout all scripture lead men to be terrified as they see the glory of God. Yet in the age to come a joyful assembly as together with the universal church. God's people throughout all ages made perfect and righteous by the blood of our Savior. What a glorious day that will be. As we come to the true judge and have our guilt removed because of the better blood of Jesus. The old cried vengeance, the new cries forgiveness. Father, forgive them. Look to the cross. Friends, that is our way to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the joy of our salvation found in the Son of God. But note the warning in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they do not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? To reject the cross is to reject the living God who has spoken to us through his son. We are not given the gospel to consider. It is not a path of many. It is an ultimatum. The gospel is an ultimatum. Find rescue at the cross. Any other way leads to God's consuming fire. If Jesus has not paid for your sin, you will pay for your sin. Jesus has touched Mount Sinai on your behalf in order that you can touch Mount Zion and live. So friends, go to Mount Zion, go there and live. Uh, Recall what we we spoke about in Jeremiah, when we did Jeremiah last year, at Jeremiah 21 verses 8 to 10, it says, Furthermore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. You see, God has been so clear The gospel tells us where to go to find life. Any other way is death. Verse 9, whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. They will escape with their lives. You see, as as. As the Jews held on to, to the city of Jerusalem, that the city of Jerusalem would be where, uh, where the Messiah comes and where Messiah will reign from. They had this picture of the earthly Jerusalem. That was their hope. That was their salvation. But what are we told in Jeremiah? They are to leave that city. They are to go. The foolishness of the gospel is that they are to go to the Babylonians. They are to surrender themselves. God lays it out very clear for them of where to find life and where to find death. Verse 10, I have determined to do this city harm and not good, declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon and he will destroy it with fire. To the Hebrews who are holding on to this physical Jerusalem, to their Jewish heritage and friends to us, to you who are so quick to hold on to and and to place our hope in the present, into the things of this world. 
Friends, God in his word tells us that he will destroy it all. He will destroy Jerusalem and he will destroy Babylon when the time comes. See that in verse 27 once more. See, not just Jerusalem, but all creation will come under the wrath of God. He will destroy it all. All that remains will be that which belongs to God. All who belong to God are those who form his kingdom. As God saves us, we become citizens of that kingdom. Uh, Mount Zion becomes now, uh, becomes a now and not yet reality for us. Uh, we have the certain hope, but we also wait for that final day. And so we are strangers and aliens in Babylon. We are citizens of God's true kingdom, but we are to live in Babylon with peace as we hold out the gospel and pursue holiness. We are ambassadors of God's kingdom, and so we live in this world pursuing peace and holiness, crying out to a dying world to have life with us in Jesus. Read verse 28 and 29 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Friends, before 2020, perhaps things around us seemed permanent and secure. And if 2020 has taught us anything, if God has taught us anything by this year, it is that we live on shaky ground. We live on shaky ground. But what does the hope of the gospel tell us today? God's people will remain. Let us be thankful for God's salvation in our lives. Let us prove that thankfulness through acceptable worship, in reverence and awe. Uh, just because we don't go to Mount Sinai doesn't mean we lose our reverence and awe for God. Acceptable worship comes at the cost of our lives to God. Uh, Paul says, submit yourselves to God as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him. Uh, that means we are to live our lives for the sole purpose of the kingdom of God. Nothing else. Nothing else matters. It's all going to be destroyed. And so we worship with reverence and awe because, well, because we know the kind of God that He is. Not with carelessness. Not with thoughtlessness, not with arrogance, not saying we are Christ followers with our words, yet betray that with our everyday pursuits. When we pursue everything else but the gospel of peace and holiness. Friends, we live our entire lives knowing that God will judge everything. To leave behind our hopes for this world and to enter into the judgment of God in Babylon. To remember that he is a consuming fire should cause us to approach him with reverence and awe, a holy fear and a right response, a right response of a life of worship now and forever as we obey him in all the things of our lives. I heard someone once describe the gospel as fire insurance. But the gospel is so much more. It is an understanding of the heavy price paid for your sin. It is an understanding of Christ's abundant mercy and grace that saves us from the wrath of God. 
is the understanding that we have been given life now to live for the glory of God and that life will last forever. So friends, remain in Christ. And if you persevere and if you endure, you've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So run, brothers and sisters, run this race. Endure, persevere, fight the good fight, fight sin, fight apathy, get rid of hindrances, fight evil, fight comfort, and hold firmly to the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom, which are yours forever. We have a kingdom that will not be shaken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have a kingdom that will not be shaken because in that kingdom reigns a God who sits on his throne. Father, no matter the persecution, no matter the hate, as we strive for peace, as we strive for holiness, no matter those things, you will still be on the throne. You will still be God, and you will judge the living and the dead. Father, I pray that our lives will be lives of acceptable worship to you as we hold out the gospel to a dying world, as citizens, as ambassadors, as aliens and strangers in Babylon. Help us not to become like Babylon, but to see people of all walks of life come to know the true God and his Savior, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.